My name is Lauren Zayu, and we're back for the second season of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered, the show about what you say and how you say it. We'll be chronicling the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration on everything from immigration to HBCUs. So join me for a crash course on this country's politics, current events, and how we move forward. Hello and welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. I'm your host, Lauren Zayu. Our show today is on equity in education, particularly for children in grades K through 12. Our guests today, Dr. Avis Williams and Dr. Brenda Elliott, have spent their careers as education equalizers, and I'm glad to have them with us. Dr. Avis Williams is an award-winning superintendent of the historic Selma City Schools in Selma, Alabama, a native of Salisbury, North Carolina. She served in leadership positions in the United States Army as an entrepreneur and school administrator. She received her undergraduate degree from Athens State University, her master's from Alabama A&M and Jacksonville State Universities, her education specialist degree, and her doctorate from the University of Alabama. She taught English and physical education and coached dance team and track. Dr. Williams has been an elementary, middle, and high school principal. She was the executive director of curriculum and instruction in Greensboro, North Carolina, where she led instruction for over 60 schools. Prior to moving to Selma, she served as the Assistant Superintendent for Curriculum and Instruction in Tuscaloosa City Schools in Alabama. Dr. Williams was awarded the Marbury Technology Innovation Award by the Atlanta State Department of Education in 2011 as a principal and in 2019 as superintendent. Dr. Williams is the 2020 Dr. Ulysses Bias Superintendent of the Year and a 2019 finalist for Alabama State Superintendent of the Year. Dr. Brenda Elliott grew up poor on a small farm in North Carolina and credits those challenging life circumstances as a key to her success in addressing the needs of our most vulnerable and historically marginalized students in public schools. She currently serves as DC Public Schools Chief of School Improvement and Supports, where she leads key strategic equity levers to include talent development, the school-based leader and staff evaluation program, school improvement initiatives, equity strategy programming, and student supports. Prior to coming to DCPS, Bryn served as assistant superintendent for student support services in Wake County Public School System, the largest school district in North Carolina and the 16th largest district in the nation. In this position, Bryn oversaw the Office of Early Learning, Counseling Student Support Department, the Alternative Extended Learning Department, and the Student Due Process Office for the district's more than 160,000 students and 180 schools. While with WCPSS, she led the district-wide implementation of a multi-tiered system of supports and development of a comprehensive plan for equitable discipline practices to address an OCR inquiry requiring disproportionate suspension and law enforcement contact with Black students. As you can tell by their extensive bios and resumes, our guests today have a wealth of knowledge to share with us, and I'm glad to have them here. I'm eager to welcome to Unbossed, Unbothered, Unfiltered, Dr. Brenda Elliott and Dr. Avis Williams. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Hi. Great to be here, Lauren. <laughs> glad to see you. Glad to be here. Um, if we just want to kind of open it up with the breadth of your work and what you do and even some of y'all's history together. Um, Dr. Elliot, you can start. 
Okay, great. So Bryn Elliott, I currently work for DC Public Schools and uh, lead uh, their Office of School Improvement and Support. I am have tw over 25 years of experience in public education um, and worked in school districts in Tennessee, North Carolina, and now the capital city. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Dr. Avis Williams um, I think around 2012, we were working together in Guilford County Schools, um, and we both happened to be leading um, parts of an equity initiative. I was leading the equity side that focused on reducing suspensions for boys of color, and she was leading the side that was focused on increasing academic measures, particularly around um, literacy. So we kind of have been uh, partners in crime around equity uh, since that time for, you know, about eight years now. Um, and we're both North Carolina girls. And uh, we both grew up in poverty, though I grew up in uh, rural America, and she grew up in um, urban America. And those experiences and conversations have really been um, foundational to the last eight years of my life of how I've addressed equity in our schools. Yeah, well, Bryn just told it all. <laughs> um, as she mentioned, I am uh, Avis Williams, and I am from North Carolina originally. Um, so currently, I'm the superintendent of Selma City Schools in Selma, Alabama. And of course, when people think of Selma, I think most people go to Bloody Sunday and think about the civil rights movement and particularly the Voters' Rights Act. Um, but there's so much more to Selma than that. And I have certainly enjoyed my time here and the work that Bryn and I have been doing around equity is a major lift and a support for many of the challenges that we face in Selma. Prior to coming here, I was an assistant superintendent in Tuscaloosa. And then before that, I was an executive director. And that's where Bryn and I met in Guilford County, North Carolina. And I've also been an elementary, middle, and high school principal, which is, wow, <laughs> enjoyed all of it, enjoyed every minute of it. And prior to becoming an administrator, I did teach English and physical education. Um, and as Bryn mentioned, we were both in the Army. Um, I did uh, land in Alabama through the Army. I was stationed at Redstone Arsenal in Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, stayed there. And before becoming an educator after the Army, I was a personal trainer, fitness instructor, and all of that good stuff. So still love fitness to this day. Um, still enjoy running um, quite a bit to this day. Um, so super excited to be here and definitely looking forward to sharing our equity journey. And, you know, since we are no longer working together, we've actually had more opportunities to dig deeper in this work. Um, mm -hmm. And our, our school districts are very different in a lot of ways, but then there are so many similarities in um, the scholars and the families that we serve. So it's, it's been um, an amazing journey and we are excited to share it. Yeah, and, and I'm excited to have y'all here and kind of just staying there for a little bit. So y'all have worked in different districts um, in different areas of the country. And so what are some of the consistencies you've seen about uh, what's needed in the equity of our schools? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, well, first of all, um, the um, racial gap in achievement, which is persistent, pervasive, and severe in most every school district in the United States. So I would say that is uh, the common uh, denominator, unfortunately. Um, it doesn't matter whether it is urban, rural, or suburban. Almost everywhere in America you go, uh, black and brown children are in the bottom for academic indicators and white children are on the tops. 
So I would say to me, that is like the common thing that we've seen. While the approaches, strategies, and remedies for this might be more nuanced depending on the demographics, uh, other demographics of the community, and, and including uh, social economics and, uh, and other uh, things like that. Um, you know, the gap is the thing that's persistent. And I think the more we dig into that, we realize that it is really based on 400 years of race and racism and racial practices that are embedded in the very culture of America and are pervasive in every system. It's in our DNA. It's in our DNA in uh, healthcare. It's in our DNA um, uh, in uh, business. It's in our DNA in education. So to me, those are the things that are most common. Um, and I think like any very rigid system that benefits the, the, the majority of people, um, it takes a lot of intentionality mm -hmm. and consistent action to be able to um, uh, dismantle those systems. And so I think those are the things that I've noticed, whether it was when I was a teacher or principal in Nashville, Tennessee, or when I was an assistant a superintendent um, in Wake County, North Carolina, uh, it's in the DNA of our, of our of the very core of everything we do. Yeah, and I certainly agree with that. The data pieces um, don't change a whole lot from district to district, unfortunately. Um, another thing that I've seen consistently is that people are trying. I mean, districts are trying, um, but I've also seen consistently that we're not trying hard enough and we're, we're sometimes not digging deep enough. And another thing that I have noticed pretty consistently is that oftentimes we don't lift up the student voice in the work that we're doing, um, you know, and which, which is a huge mistake. You know, when we talk to our scholars, they have so much to bring to the table and the, the conversations with them are so enlightening. Um, and I've seen pretty consistently that too often we check off that we uh, met with an advisory council or an SGA or something of that nature, um, but not in a meaningful way where there was follow through and mm -hmm. where we could really say that the student voice was um, a, a primary consideration, you know, so that our efforts are truly student centered in what we're doing. Um, so I, I, again, I agree with Bryn that the data points don't lie, but um, I, I mean, every district that I've worked in and that I've consulted with, they're all trying, um, but we're still missing the mark. And I just don't think we're digging deep enough in some of the right areas. And I don't think we're being brave enough um, consistently um, in, in some of the conversations that we need to be having. And um, and I just love Bryn so much. She, Bryn taught me this. So when I say this, I got this from her. We are not interrogating the racialized data enough. Um, and, and it's just so true. I mean, we're looking at it, we're reviewing it, we're analyzing it, whatever that means for an individual district. And we've got data teams doing this. And, you know, we may even have consultants coming in, but we are not truly digging deep and inter interrogating that data to the point where we can get to a why and to a crux of some of the practices that we have in place that are systemic, that are help, helping to precipitate or increase the, the gaps that we see um, academically. Mm. That's that's important. And out of curiosity, just just so the viewers understand, when, what is the achievement gap? Like, what what are you measuring when you're measuring that? Um, yeah. So, um, well, you know, it depends because there are a lot of achievement gaps. So mm -hmm. we could be talking about the gap in standardized testing. So. Uh, so whenever you uh, disaggregate your data and you look at the performance of kids by race or by ability or by gender or whatever, um, you're examining those gaps. So it could be standardized testing. Um, it could be gaps in course passing. 
uh, just, you know, credit accumulation. It could be gaps in graduation rate, but all of those are really related to, you know, some of the most important student outcome measures uh, that we examine gaps around. So um, it could be in uh, literacy. So if there is a particular literacy assessment that you're doing in your school, uh, many uh, school districts, uh, you know, have uh, goals of having all kids reading on grade level by grade three. So mm -hmm. looking at those gaps in achievement um, also is one and way I, to think I, about it. And I would add to that um, the gaps in terms of over identifying for special education and under identifying for gifted education programs and the gaps in at the high school level of our scholars who are getting uh, college credit and are in AP AP classes. And, you know, one thing that I that, that we all know as educators is you cannot start preparing scholars for um, advanced classes in ninth or 10th grade. You know, that starts during those early years um, where you're building that rigorous curriculum. Um, and so what we see is um, an, an, an imbalance between um, access to rigorous curriculum or not. And too often, um, black and brown scholars do not have consistent access to rigorous curriculum. That's really helpful. And, and as we transition into hold up, like that's, that's sort of the conversation I wanted to have with you is in like equity and equality in our schools is a, an issue that people have been talking about since integration, since the invention of our public schools. And so I'm, I'm curious to know like, what is the starting place in a conversation on equity? And like, what, what is most helpful when you're having these conversations? Mm -hmm. um, I would say, the starting place is just to start. Um, you know, there's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're um, a, a newlywed or maybe you've been married for a few years, it's like, it's just not the right time to have a child. You know, it's never going to be the perfect time to have this conversation and there's never going to be a perfect set of circumstances. Um, now I would say, you know, you have to know yourself and, and, and start where you're comfortable. There's nothing wrong with starting out comfortable, but being prepared to get uncomfortable. You know, so when I think about starting, I think about Twitter chats. I think about think tanks and maybe even book talks where where it's a um, a safe space to have those deep conversations and maybe it's even with like-minded people where you don't really have to to push yourself too much but you're able to learn and you're able to grow and then you take that learning and that growth and you and in, in, engage in some braver conversations in some braver spaces and that's when um, you are talking to people who maybe don't share your same belief and you do it in an open-minded way, um, but also armed with the things that you've learned um, about, um, you know, racial discrimination, systemic um, oppression, and whatever other areas of focus that you may have learned. Um, you know, take that and then be, be brave enough to have some deeper conversations. But I would say there's no perfect starting spot. You just have to start. Yeah. Um, I, I would say one place to start is it, as you, you know, if you're examining those gaps, either as, uh, you know, a person who is an educator or a parent um, or a member of a community, I just ask yourself, is this outcome acceptable for my own children? Mm. Um, start with that as a question um, and then really spend time letting that sit with you as you think about the impact of a lousy education and it's in the, in the in, its impact on the trajectory for children for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, uh, there's one of my favorite quotes. I'll mess it up by James Comer. It's, and he says that um, accountability is hard for adults, but a lousy education is calamitous for children for the rest of their lives. Mm 
for mm -hmm. the rest. And it really is. It impacts whether kids can get into college. Uh, it imp impact, and then college impacts the type of, um, you know, careers that they're able to get to and, mm -hmm. and careers impact the, the type of life those children will, will eventually have. Mm -hmm. So we have to understand the seriousness of this. Um, the racial achievement gap in America has been consistent for at least the last 50 years. It has not moved. Um, and we have to, as a nation, really comes to, to, to um, grips with, with what that means for the future of children, like mm -hmm. what we are doing for the future of children by not insisting that that, that is addressed. Um, and so I just push us at that, you know, from the, the stance of thinking about, is this acceptable for my own children? And I can tell you, I believe most of the people would say it would not. If, if mm -hmm. we were talking about white children at the bottom for this long um, in this way, uh, I, I guarantee you it would not be acceptable um, to the majority. And it is something that we really have to focus on. Um, I also want to add that I really think that it has to be strategic. Um, Avis and I best, both mentioned that school districts have been working on this problem for years and years and years. Like since the, the I think it was in the 1940s when we first started looking at racialized achievement gaps. And we've been working on it uh, since then. So the issue is how are we strategic? And Avis and I are both former military, uh, we're military veterans, both former military army soldiers. And we have to have a battle plan. Like mm -hmm. you really have to be thinking about like, what is the infantry going to do? What's the air, air, air force going to do? What's the Navy Marines? Like we, this is a battle that we need to start fighting in terms of how we fight battles. Um, what is it that our community is going to do? What is it that our politicians are going to do? What is it that our elected boards are going, our school boards are going to do? What is it that our teachers, super, like everybody has a role to play in order to dismantle, dismantle what we're seeing play out in our schools over and over again. I like that, the idea of a battle plan, right? Yeah. And I think that's important, particularly in America, because that's something we take very seriously, right? Mm -hmm. And it's something um, that is language that people can relate to. <laughs> it is, it is. And keeping that in mind, I was actually just curious in, in some of your experiences, what the trying has looked like. Both of you expressed like, you know, we're trying, but it's just not necessarily resonating. And so what's some of the trying that you think has worked or hasn't worked um, in, in the different spaces you've been in? I, I remember, and Brent, I'm sure you can relate to this. I remember how frustrated people were with No Child Left Behind when we first were forced to disaggregate data. And I just remember how frustrating it was for a lot of people. And I, I remember as, as a Black administrator, I was an assistant principal at the time, uh, and I remember how uncomfortable I felt um, hearing this because it wasn't something that we were doing on a consistent basis um, prior to No Child Left Behind. Um, and so that pushed us as a nation to really uh, understand the, the fact that we did have this racial achievement gap. And it also required us from an accountability standpoint to do something about it. So some of the trying has been about digging deep in the data in terms of analyzing it, uh, creating equity teams, equity leadership teams, even uh, 
um, going as far as having equity audits, um, you know, and, and including equity within strategic plans and that type of thing. So there are lots of efforts uh, being done out there. Um, and I will say this, um, my experience in Guilford County was really life changing for me um, because as an adult woman, I heard things about our nation's history that I did not know to be the case. <laughs> um, and we were required, every employee was required to have two days of anti-racist training. Um, which was not something that I had seen done. And I know that's not being done in a lot of school districts across the nation. Uh, but um, even with that being the case, um, as Bryn expressed, we were still challenged with trying to determine how do we move forward? You know, how do we eradicate and dismantle some of the systems that has caused this gap in the first place? So, you know, we definitely see the trying. And, you know, and I would even go as far as to say that that there are some some bright spots, obviously, and some celebrations within all of that. Um, we just have to remain um, consistent and, and stick to the battle plan, develop a battle plan and stick to the battle plan. And I would say one of the challenges oftentimes is, is uh, the change in leadership. Um, you may know that um, within the, the role of superintendent at one time, the life expectancy in any one place was not even three years. It was just under three years. And I think right now it's right at three years. Um, when I think about my own experience here in Selma, um, there was a huge turnover with superintendents up until I got here. I'm the first superintendent and um, gosh, about 15 years to have a contract renewed. Um, and I've got employees who have been with us for, you know, 12 or 15 years and they've had nine superintendents. Um um, and, you know, so, so that, that is obviously not good. <laughs> you know, you're not going to, to, uh, be successful, uh, with any endeavor when you're having to change leadership like that. And so, um, despite all of the efforts, I would say that's definitely been one of the pitfalls and challenges that many districts have faced. Sure. Um, I, I want to tell a personal story and then I want to talk a little bit about research. But um, when Avis and I worked together in North Carolina, um, I, I mentioned that I led a project to um, address the oversuspension of boys of color. Um, in, in that work, it was a pilot of three schools um, that I actually was able then to take that model uh, to Wake County and, and do that work with six middle schools. Um, what we were able to do is in one year, um, cut in half the number of days that Black boys lost out of school due to suspension. Mm. Um, and that was due to a couple of things. The first one is addressing mindsets, right? So there is a need for cultural proficiency training in this nation for our educators mm. um, and every adult that uh, touches children um, mm -hmm. to not only understand the history of race and racism in America and how it functions and how whiteness functions, um, but to also examine our own biases that we bring to those experiences and to understand how to produce uh, or uh, to produce classroom and school environments that young people feel uh, fully included and are, are able to bring their full selves. So I think that is a key thing that happened. The second thing is uh, one of our principals that had the, the greatest result in reducing the lost days of suspension, him and his leadership team took every suspension 
and they examined the, uh, well, um, every uh, discipline incident, and they were going to make a decision around suspension. And they looked to see if it, for a white child that had a similar situation, was that decision suspension? And if it was not, they did not give a suspension to Black kids. And those two things alone cause them to have a 50% reduction. So you have to have an equity lens that you're looking through whenever you are uh, enacting any type of practice or policy to ensure that you are intentionally thinking about the in impact to our historically marginalized students. Um, the the research I want to speak to is I recently got my doctorate, woo <laughs> um, and I actually wrote on the the racial gap in achievement between Black and White children in America's public, I mean urban public schools. And what I did was I looked at some research back in 2009 where um, they had uh, done a, a researcher had done a study on superintendents who had significantly closed the racial gap in achievement, and found and and went to interrogate what were the most uh, common practices that they used. And um, so I did, did, did a study for from 2020 that looked into those practices in some school districts across America to see if those school districts that thought they were doing a good job in addressing equ equity were also using those strategies, which for the most part they were. But they included, you know, having an equity policy, um, having a board that was committed to equity um, by either policy development or funding. Um, it uh, included the cultural proficiency training. It included engagement with the community and being really uh, intentional about providing supports for your most historically marginalized students and ensuring high expectations for all our students. So those are just some of the things that research this happened. So there are lots of school districts around the country that are doing this work. A lot of school districts in the last decade who have actually hired chief equity officers to drive this uh, work for them. But I think the, the thing is that sometimes we underestimate the problem. We think that, you know, this one or two strategies, nah, we are in a battle. We are in a battle against 400 years of race and racism. And it has to be strategic um, and persistent. That is the only way we're going to undo uh, and, and remove this from, you know, from our educational structures. I think the uh, the persistency is something that I've I've been wrestling with a lot. So I, I think one hearing about uh, the phrase anti-racist, I feel like wasn't even on my radar easily in the last like two to three years, right? Like we just wasn't. So to hear that Guilford County down in North Carolina was doing anti-racist training, like in the early 2010s, right? I think is, is amazing to hear, right? That it was that um, that it was on the radar and it was being executed in that way. And so I think that that's great. I also think that so much of, um, as, as a Texan, right? And as a product of public schools, I think a lot of uh, the conversation is a, how would I frame it? Like, I think there's a, people like, things to be the way they've always been <laughs> and yeah. so asking people to change things is very much an uphill battle especially when you're dealing with children and education so much of even the rhetoric we hear now on the right is about like well, what about our children what about education our kids can't even xyz um, without any thought of how black children are treated mm -hmm. in, in this system and to just give like a brief anecdote um 
I mean, y'all know public schools are based on like your physical location. So me and my siblings all went to the same like elementary school, middle school and high school. Um, and so me and my sister are the oldest and then my brothers are younger. Mm-hmm. But um, me and my brother are close enough in age that we were in in like elementary school together and high school together. Um, and I just remember us having very different experiences. I remember uh, my brother being painted as a uh, discipline issue, as um, all of these these things. And my mom was consistently at the school um, advocating for him in, in the ways that she knew how. And I couldn't put it together as a child, like why that was, like why the same teachers that maybe weren't, you know, I wouldn't say they were like great for me, right? But definitely weren't necessarily an active hindrance with why my brother would have such a different experience, let's say even like two years apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and so acknowledging that the way black boys and black girls are treated in these systems are different mm-hmm. and that we have to consider that in the equity conversation as well. So I say all of that to say that part of the persistency is understanding this is not going to be like a step one fix all, or I guess like a one in all program. Like you're going to have to have the things that take into account the nuance of our experiences. And so what I'm enjoying and like hearing so much of the way that y'all talk about your work is that, that, that nuance is being taken into account and that you're specific in who you're talking about and who you're targeting with your programs, which I think is so much uh, is important, but also is a lot of the problem. I do think people try to for like, um, with we, I saw this on Twitter and I loved it, but it was, um, like the revolution will not be microwaved. Like this idea that you can just, (laughs) this is going to be consistent and persistent for decades. Um, and you can't just, just let it go because we are responding to 400 years Mm -hmm. of, of racism. As we transition into, uh, I ain't sorry, you know, as far as something in your work that you don't apologize for, Dr. Elliot, as you, um, in your years working in equity, what is something that like your students have taught you or that you've learned from working with students in particular? Um, well, one thing I, you know, I remember being a high school principal in uh, North Carolina, I'm sorry, in Nashville, Tennessee, and um, in an inner city school. When I, I came to the school, it was on the top 10 most dangerous schools in the state of Tennessee. It had been a failing school for more than eight consecutive years. It was on the failing list before there was a federal failing list. So um, I can just remember being overwhelmed about what I was trying to do and uh, be able to um, change at that school. And one day I was walking in the hall, I was so frustrated because we were dealing with gang violence in the school. Um, You know, we were dealing with, um, you know, some families, not all, some families who did not understand why I was trying to push AP courses and advanced placement courses and making all kids take the PSAT. I mean, like like I was, uh, I had a big meeting with parents about that. They were upset. Um, while, while I was in, insisting that kids could not play in the band or play football if they did not uh, go to study hall or meet their academics. I was pushing against a lot of things. And I can remember walking down the hall one day after a big fight in my school, and this was in Stratford High School. And I walked by one of my students and she said, Miss Elliott, stay strong. Mm-hmm. And like every time I get tired at this work, I remember 
uh, and Adrian telling me to stay strong. So if young people who are living in these um, systems of poverty, systems of violence, system, uh, uh, inequitable systems that are not giving them a fair shake and they can tell me to stay strong, mm -hmm. then I can stay strong. So that is yeah. one of the things that, you know, that my, my students have taught me. And I see that even in the conversations here um, in the capital city, uh, we have some really strong initiatives that are focused on uh, supporting boys of color through our male educators of color and our RAIN initiatives for girls, um, girls of color. And I just see black uh, brilliance all over the place with young people that are just dying for opportunities. Yeah. And all of that inspires me um, as um, an educational leader to make sure I am providing those opportunities um, so that young people have access to the hopes and dreams uh, for them and their future. And they uh, they want to go to college. They want to be successful. They want to establish build, uh, businesses. They want to be doctors and and lawyers, and oftentimes on media, they're projected to only want to play football, professional football, or only, you know, uh, you know, be a rapper or something. No, our kids have big, bold dreams, and they want to change the world. And it's something that we as adults really need to dig in and and ensure is made possible for them. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. Stay strong, Miss Elliot. <laughs> so I, I have a, a, a story as well. Um, when I was an assistant superintendent, we did uh, frequent walkthroughs. And this was early in my tenure in this position. And it was my first time at this particular elementary school and went into classroom after classroom. And I saw some some of the most ineffective practices and lack of student engagement. Um, and, you know, it really gave me pause and the, the principal had been there for two years at that point and um, you know it, it was my opportunity to get to know him and to learn how I could support him and how my team could help support his teachers and um, you know I was very concerned with their literacy scores um, and math as well I mean all of their scores were um, you know, well below um, the other schools within the district and so you know as we walked through and I you know I asked him you know what type of feedback would you give this teacher and you know just some other questions about just to learn more about him as a leader. And when we finished up at the end of that, the walkthrough, um, you know, I asked him, okay, so what do you need from me? And he said, more computers. I said, tell me more. Um, he said, well, you know, the tests are on computers and then, you know, they need to learn how to type on the computer in order to answer the test in time. And, um, and I said, and, and tell me how that's going to help improve their reading and math um, proficiency. I said, I'm not worried about the score, but I want them to be able to read and I want them to have um, the numeracy necessary to be successful as they move beyond your school. Um, mm -hmm. So tell me how that's going to help with, with those areas, those academic areas. And he said, well, you know, I don't know. I, I guess after, you know, if they really do well on the test, I, you know, I hope they can read when they, when, by the time they leave. And I, and I told him without even blinking, I said, hope is not a strategy. And I meant it. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, he was kind of taken aback and I was not happy with him. And we had some long conversations after that. And when I said that, I meant it for adults. Hope is not a strategy. Now, fast forward a few years, um, I uh, have lunch and learn with my scholars. Um, we, of course, used to do it face to face um, pre-pandemic. And, you know, one of the things that I learned in a, in a workshop and in actually several books that I've re read is the power of optimism and the power of hope. Mm 
um, as it relates to children and as it relates to adults in terms of our health care, our wellness, our uh, mindfulness and that type of thing. Not in terms of learning how to read, though. Let me be clear. <laughs> and so the one thing that I have learned from my scholars is that hope matters. So when mm -hmm. I have lunch and learn, I ask them two questions. What are your hopes and dreams? And what do you need from your school? And as Bryn just, just said, I mean, they have big hopes and dreams. But what I've also learned is sometimes their hope is just to not hear gunshots at night. You know, their hope is that they can live long enough to, to help um, buy their mom a house one day. And, you know, these are maybe second graders. They don't know how they're going to do it yet. Uh, but they have hope. Um, and they need hope and they need optimism. And, you know, joy is one of our core values. And one of the things that, that we talk about often is celebrating excellence and creating opportunities to celebrate. Um, and I've learned so much better how to do that by spending time with our scholars. Um, because if, if they have if they have nothing else, they, they have this eternal hope that we sometimes wipe away. You know, with with our policies and with our guidelines and, and stand in the third block when you're walking down the hall and some of the other foolery that in no way is truly impacting the outcomes of their life. Um, so I've learned to, um, to to be a hope dealer. Um, that's what we call it in Selma. And to make sure that that what the work that we're doing is not a hope killer. You know, that we are actually inspirational and, and optimistic in uh, letting our scholars know that they can be and do anything as big as their dreams can hold. Um, and that we're providing the structure and the strategies, not the hope, but the strategies to ensure that they are able to do it in the classroom and in all of our schools. I think both of those are absolutely dynamic. Um, I do think that like the, the hope and optimism of children is not to be wiped away. That's a, mm -hmm. a, a, something that they need um, in so much of what we do. And I also think um, moments of, of stay strong or just like I, I think of the, the small moments of knowing someone's listening, someone cares, someone's paying attention are mm -hmm. always so helpful. And so I love that she could offer that for you. Um, and it, it, I've, I've learned a lot um, looking back on my education as an adult now of things that I wasn't necessarily, I guess, potentially critical of at the time. Um, and something that I've very much enjoyed, well, no, not enjoyed at all. Something that I've realized is that I, in a lot of spaces, my school conditioned me to obey. Mm -hmm. That was the primary objective um, at any point. And so transitioning that into when I did go to college, right. And they wanted to give, um, I went to a liberal arts college and so they wanted less structure, right? They're like, oh, how would you address this? Like, let's, let's find. And I was confused because I, all I'd ever done was follow instruction. Um, and so the idea of like doing something on my own or coming up with a solution on my own was, was a brand new experience for me. And so I like, one of the things that I'm enjoying um, in watching people become teachers, because like now, like my peers are teachers, um, is the emphasis on like the, the desire to allow children to express themselves and understand um, where they're coming from in, in a way that still allows them to receive an education. I think at the time, um, so much of us was about like obedience and control, because if you mm -hmm. lost control, then what was going to happen? Um, and so to, to see children now like able to, to be themselves and still learn has been something that I've enjoyed immensely.
And as we transition into um, our final segment, Drunk in Love, I would just love to hear about um, either anything that you think is important in this work that you didn't get to say earlier, or just final remarks kind of as we as we wrap everything up. Dr. Elliot, we can start with you. Um, sure, Drunk in Love, I love that. Um, I would say, um, I would one thing I, I haven't ha had an opportunity to say, I did mention that I grew up in poverty, but um, education um, has been my way out of that, that life experience. Um, I grew up uh, poor in North Carolina in a house that had outdoor plumbing. Um, and I mean, this was in the 70s. So, I mean, they had indoor toilets at that time. We did not have, um, we did not have air conditioning or heat. Um, and, you know, like a lot of people are, are sharing stories about like this cold weather, what do you love to do in, in the snow? Well, I grew up poor in the country. I hate cold weather. I have really bad memories of being cold all night long, not being able to sleep because I was so cold. Um, so when it's cold outside, I stay inside. That's that's my that's my strategy. But my poverty was very different than the poverty that many kids experience. I had both of my parents. My mom was critical, uh, chronically ill, but I grew up in a loving home. Uh, my dad read to us. Um, I had exposure to Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, poetry at an early age. And, you know, we have kids that if they graduate, and, and my father and mother were both high school graduates. They graduated in the, the 40s, right? Uh, I have kids that, you know, that I support that if they graduate, if they graduate, they will be the first person in their house to ever have graduated. And um, they are dealing with life situations that most adults could not withstand, mm -hmm. um, dealing with parents that are incarcerated living in uh, communities that have ha have violence, not having access to, access to food. I mean, I grew up in the country. If we were hungry, my dad would go shoot something. Like, I never I never missed a meal. Like, it could might have been a possum or a coon, but I always had something to, to eat. And we have kids that um, have so many things stacked against them. So I am just drunk in love over um, trying to be um, an equalizer. Like, you know, I love the new equalizer with Queen Latifah, right? I, like I'm an educational equalizer, y'all. I'm not here to do this work. <laughs> I love and, it. And I mean, I'm, I'm in, in love with the idea to be able to ensure that kids that look like me that were underdogs have the opportunity for their, to, their brilliance to show through. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I love it. The equalizer. <laughs> and, I, and I cannot disagree with that. I would say for me, um, when I think about our babies, um, I want them to be able to see black excellence and the greatness within themselves. And so the one thing that, that I want to learn more about and do more about is the historical context um, of our curriculum that's being taught in schools, um, because I do not think it appreciates and values um, Black people, Africans, the way that it needs to. Um, you know, our scholars need to see the royalty that they came from. You know, they need to know that that our history did not begin with slavery. 
um, and you know, and 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 in too many spaces, that's that's where our history begins. Um, and 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 that's just normal in a, in America at this point. Um, and you, know, so when I think about our babies and the beauty and the smartness and um, the potential that they have to do and be anything that they can dream of, um, I think that um, so much more could be done if they truly understood their history, if they mm -hmm. truly understood where they came from. Um, yeah, I've heard people say, in fact, there was an, a mentoring program called Seeing is Believing. Um, and it was just talking about the power of visualization, the power of being able to see uh, what could be or what is. Um, and, I, and so I am just committed to being able to show our babies more of themselves and the greatness within themselves so that they can see all of the potential that they have and all that our ancestors did for them so that they have the opportunities to hope and to dream and to be anything that they absolutely dream of. And I'm drunk in love with just the idea of, of being able to share that with as many of our babies as possible. I, I love both of those. Those are, are great things to be drunk in love with. And I've loved having both of you here. This has been such a rich episode, so much um, like, I guess wisdom has been shared in your experience. And starting with you, Dr. Williams, in the events that people want to reach out to you or see more about your work, what's the best way they do that? Yeah, well, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Avis W is D-R-A-V-I-S-W. And my Gmail address is dr.avisww at gmail.com. So I would love to hear from you. Sounds good. And Dr. Avis? Okay, yeah, on Twitter at Bryn, B R E N, Elliot, E L L I O T T, 24 7. Or um, you could reach out to me um, on Gmail at BF Elliot, that's two L's and two T's, 2000 at gmail.com. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you both for being here. I'm going to wrap really quickly. Thank you. You're welcome. You just finished this episode of Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered with host Lauren Zayu and music by Lighthouse Productions. If you want to learn more about the show, follow at Lauren Zayu on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find more episodes on Facebook and Instagram at Unbossed, Unbothered, and Unfiltered. Thanks for listening. <laughs>